Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism. In this video, I will be discussing the life of St. Cyprian, from his days as a sorcerer to his conversion by St. Justina. In the second part of the video, I will go over a few instances of necromancy and magic that are found in the scriptures, and then I will end the video with more recent events that have taken place in a mountain range in Italy involving sorcery and the battle between Our Lady and the dark forces of Satan. Now, let's start with the life of St. Cyprian. As some of you might know, Saints Cyprian and Justina were removed from the calendar by the modernists in the 1960s, along with a whole host of other saints, including my namesake, Christopher. This was done in similar fashion to what the leftists are now doing, or attempting to do, in the United States, by tearing down statues, rewriting history, so that it suits their purposes. For the modernists, their purpose was about removing anything that has to deal with the supernatural or the preternatural. They wanted to make everything materialistic, naturalistic. Uh, this was also used to demoralize the Catholic faithful and cause them to doubt things that they've believed, saints that they've prayed to throughout the history of the church. The modernists did the same thing with the scriptures, and they attempted to make nearly everything, all of the stories in the Bible, myth, and or undermine the historical proofs behind the actual events. They went even so far as to claim that the miracles of Jesus were just pious stories, but they didn't really happen. And I can even attest to this when I was a catechist, that in the books that they wanted to have us teach the children, they wanted us to tell them that when Jesus was a child, he didn't know who he was. He didn't know that he was the son of God, which is just completely absurd, ridiculous, and blasphemous. Now, in the case of St. Cyprian, there are a number of pagan and occult sources, as well as the butler's lives of the saints, the Roman martyrology, that support this Catholic tradition. Occultists to this day revere Cyprian prior to his conversion, as he was one of the most powerful sorcerers, if not the most powerful sorcerer of his day, even having physical assistance from Satan. Uh, there is even to this day a grimoire attributed to him, which contains, or so-called contains, the instructions on his dark arts. This is disputed, though, because he's said to have burned all of his books, but I'm sure it'd be very simple for demonic spirit to dictate the same evil text to another slave of Lucifer. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read a section from several pagan and occult sources on his background, and then I'm going to have a different narrator read from the Butler's Lives of the Saints. And you can see how similar the stories are. So let me begin. It is said that Cyprian of Antioch was born in Carthage as a pagan child, dedicated to the service of Apollo, Greek god of light, youth, healing, and prophecy. He entered the mysteries of Mithras at the age of seven, carried the torch of Demeter, wore the white garments of Kor, and served the serpent of Pas. He was then sent off to Mount Olympus to be initiated into communion of demons 
who are born from the echoes of the heavenly voices, feeding only on fruits and acorns after sunset for 29 days. At the age of 10, he learned divination from the movement of animals, the sound of trees, and from the whispers of the dead. At the age of 15, he lived in Argos and served the goddess Juno. He then lived in Icara, where he served the goddess Diana, and then Sparta, where he learned incantations on how to commune with the dead. He moved to Memphis, Egypt at the age of 20, where he learned the ways of possession and demonology, meaning the demons the great Solomon once had. It is also said that this is where Cyprian learned how to magically induce natural disasters. At 30 years old, he set out to learn from the Chaldeans, astrology, herbology, as well as the motion of ether, fire, and light. This is where Cyprian met and honored the devil. Thus, he was entrusted with an infantry of demons. He then moved to Antioch, where he became a famous philosopher and a powerful sorcerer. One day, a young man named Agladas came to seek his services to win the love of a virgin named Justina. He sent out several demons who were unsuccessful in turning her will. Justina's god was more powerful, and through prayer, no demon could harm her. And after several attempts, Cyprian's magic was extinguished. Seeing this, the devil himself tried to carry on the mission, but after Justina made the sign of the cross, his attempts were also unsuccessful. The powerless Cyprian renounced his pagan practices and went to Justina to plead for his life. Turned away, he approached the Christian god, where he was shown mercy. After converting to Christianity, he eventually worked his way through the hierarchy and became the bishop of Antioch. He was then turned over by the people to the Roman governor of the, re of the region, where he would be judged for shaming their gods and turning people away from them. Both Justina and Cyprian were tortured by being thrown into a boiling cauldron, but no harm came to them. Fearing their sorcery, they were sent to Nicomedia, where they were both beheaded. During his confession prior to his death, he recounted the acts he committed, killing people physically and magically, decapitating dark-skinned youth to Hecate, burying young adults to Pluto, giving the blood of virgins to Pallas, and the blood of full-grown men to Kronos. It was in Portugal during the 19th century that a book bearing his name appeared, the Great Book of St. Cyprian, in which the legend tells us that this book was written by the saint himself and contains spells and incantations that terrifies anyone who possesses it. Legend also says that if read in its entirety, it will attract the devil himself. This book was later taken to Brazil, where its practices were infused with the Afro-Caribbean religions of Umbanda and Candombole, where he is venerated alongside the Pombagiras of Kimbanda. And that is the, the pagan occult history of St. Cyprian. And before I go into the Butler's Lives of the Saints uh, account of his life, just a few things to point out here with St. Cyprian killing people physically, magically, 
uh, offering blood to these different demonic spirits. Some people might think, well, that just seems far-fetched. But you just have to look over the history of mankind, the history of human sacrifice, from the very beginning with, with Cain and Abel up to the present day. What do you think abortion is? That is human sacrifice. The occultists, the Satanists, the, the wicked people in high places want and need that continual sacrifice because Satan demands it. It's a mockery, an imitation of Christ's sacrifice in the Mass from the rising of the sun till its setting. And Lucifer has his own sacrifice, a pure sacrifice in the sense that there are innocent children who have never committed actual sin, although they have original sin. And the great evil of of killing unborn children is that they can never go to heaven because they can never uh, enter into the beatific vision without being baptized because they cannot have desire and so they cannot be they cannot take part in the sacramental grace received from water baptism through desire because they're not of the age of reason so they would go to the limbo of the infants and we also know the satanic rites that were exposed recently with a spirit cooking um, all sorts of evil diabolic type actions activities um, including the rites of pedophilia and things of that nature which are found at the very highest levels of society of government uh, you know of these satanic forces and the more and more we advance te technologically things just stay the same as far as immorality goes because these things have been going on for thousands and thousands of years it's just that they go underground or hidden or part of these secret societies and quite frankly they don't want anyone to believe in the spiritual life they don't want anyone to be aware of these different rites secrets uh, whatever you want to call it, because then they have this power, this advantage over the unwashed masses, over the uninitiated. And they also have power over those who would ordinarily believe in God, worship God, be in a state of grace, use sacramentals, but because they've so much destroyed faith and just saturated the world with immorality and impurity that now mankind is set up for a massive deception and it's a punishment it's a punishment for a lack of faith uh, and for immorality and so this is where you get these mass movements of people just believing what quite frankly the alchemists that run the world are doing with, you know, be it the injections which contain matter from murdered unborn babies, among other things, things that change your DNA. And so this is the modern day sorcery, this is the modern day alchemy to to kill people magically. Uh it's it's modern day science which back then 
people didn't really have an understanding of science. And so these men who, who had the help of demonic spirits understanding how to use, use them, use the preternatural gifts of these fallen angels, as well as the science behind the actual creation that God put into place. Let's go now to the account of Saints Cyprian and Justina found in the Butler's Lives of the Saints. And then when I come back, I'll pick up this, this same subject I was talking about, looking at it from a biblical perspective with different events that occurred in the Bible around sorcery, necromancy, and magic. So let's go now to my friend Sir Alfred, who will begin narrating from the Butler's Lives of the Saints. Cyprian, surnamed the Magician, was a native of Antioch who, was brought up in all the impious mysteries of idolatry, astrology and black magic. In hopes of making great discoveries in these infernal arts, he left his native country when he was grown up and traveled to Athens, Mount Olympus in Macedonia, Argos, Phrygia, Memphis in Egypt, Chaldea, and the Indies, places at that time famous for superstition and magical practices. When Cyprian had filled his head with all the extravagances of these schools of wickedness and delusion he stuck at no crimes, blasphemed Christ, and committed secret murders in order to offer the blood and inspect the bowels of children as decisive of future events, nor did he scruple to use his arts to overcome the chastity of women. At that time there lived at Antioch a lady called Justina, whose beauty drew all eyes upon her. She was born of heathen parents but was brought over to the Christian faith by overhearing a deacon preaching, and her conversion was followed by that of her father and mother. A young pagan, a glades, fell deeply in love with her, and finding himself unable to win her to his will he applied to Cyprian for the assistance of his art. Cyprian was no less enamored of the lady than his friend, and tried every secret with which he was acquainted to conquer her resolution. Justina, finding herself vigorously attacked, armed herself by prayer, watchfulness and mortification against all his artifices and the power of his spells, suppliantly beseeching the Virgin Mary that she would succor a virgin in danger. Three times she overcame the assaults of demons sent by Cyprian by blowing in their faces and making the sign of the cross. Cyprian, finding himself worsted by a superior power, threatened his last emissary, who was the devil himself, that he would abandon his service. The devil, enraged to lose one by whom he had made so many conquests, assailed Cyprian with the utmost fury, and he was only repulsed by Cyprian himself making the sign of the cross. The soul of the penitent sinner was seized with a gloomy melancholy, which brought him almost to the brink of despair, at the sight of his past crimes. God inspired him in this perplexity to address himself to a priest named Eusebius, who had formerly been his schoolfellow, and by the advice of this priest he was comforted and encouraged in his conversion. Cyprian, 
who in the trouble of his heart had been three days without eating, by the counsel of this director took some food, and on the following Sunday was conducted by him to the assembly of the Christians. So much was Cyprian struck by the reverence and devotion with which their divine worship was performed that he said of it, I saw the choir of heavenly men or of angels, singing to God, adding at the end of every verse in the Psalms the Hebrew word Alleluia, so that they seemed not to be men. Everyone present was astonished, to see Cyprian introduced among them by a priest, and the bishop was scarce able to believe that his conversion was sincere. But Cyprian gave him a proof the next day by burning before his eyes all his magical books, giving his goods to the poor, and entering himself among the catechumens. After due instruction and preparation, he received the sacrament of baptism from the hands of the bishop. Aglades was likewise converted and baptized. Justina herself was so moved at these wonderful examples of the divine mercy that she cut off her hair as a sign that she dedicated her virginity to God, and disposed of her jewels and all her possessions to the poor. Cyprian was made doorkeeper and then promoted to the priesthood, and, after the death of Anthemus the bishop, was placed in the episcopal chair of Antioch. When the persecution of Diocletian began, Cyprian was apprehended and carried before the governor of Phoenicia, who resided at Tyre. Justina had retired to Damascus, her native country, which city at that time was subject to the same authority and, falling into the hands of the persecutors, was presented to the same judge. She was inhumanly scourged, and Cyprian was torn with iron hooks. After this they were both sent in chains to Diocletian at Nicomedia, who, upon reading the letter of the governor of Phoenicia, without more ado commanded their heads to be struck off. This sentence was executed upon the banks of the river Gallus, after a vain effort had been made to slay the martyrs by boiling them in a cauldron of pit. So those are both two very interesting accounts, and as you can see they're, they're actually very similar, with the pagan account going more into the occult, and then the Christian account while covering a lot of the evils that he did, also giving more detail about his conversion. And this should give people hope, especially those who have led very sinful, immoral, evil lives, that a true conversion can and does happen, but one has to act upon the graces that God gives and has to persevere. You know, Cyprian was almost at despair, but fortunately he had, he had a good spiritual advisor, spiritual director to help him and he did not give up. And that is the key, is perseverance. Prayer and persevere. As I've said in the past, God does not ask us to do the impossible. So it, it might be a particular sin, a vice, a habit, that you cannot overcome. And that's when you have to humble yourself and appeal to God. But at the same time, you have to act as well. You have to take the steps. And that would include praying the rosary every day. Praying 15 decades, it's very powerful in overcoming all sorts of vice and sin. Powerful graces from that. Fasting, 
that's another very powerful way of overcoming evil, especially the diabolic. So now I just want to go over a few biblical accounts on wizards, sorcerers, fortune-telling, divination, occult things of that nature. Uh, and also, I'll bring up a few things in the present day as well, like I mentioned in the beginning. So let's start here with the book of Exodus, and this is meant to be exhaustive. Uh, but I'm going to cover several different verses and accounts. But here you can see the first one from the book of Exodus. Wizards, thou shalt not suffer to live. Uh, the other, the next one is from Leviticus. Go not aside after wizards, neither ask anything of soothsayers to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. This third one, and the spirit of Egypt shall be broken in the bowels thereof, and I will cast down their counsel, and they shall consult their idols and their diviners and their wizards and soothsayers. So you see God is acknowledging the occult, that that. There are such things as wizards. There are such things as sorcerers, witches. They do have occult powers because they're giving themselves over to demonic spirits, as I mentioned earlier, who have preternatural gifts, who have such a higher intellect than us, and also, obviously, their spirits. So they know how to manipulate the weather. They know how to deceive and create illusions and also understand science and technology. So it's important to to understand and realize this, but it is all condemned because it goes against the first commandment, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Because when you're going to someone to read tarot cards or read your palm or going to an astrologer, any of these types of people you are putting your trust in the diabolic instead of trusting in divine providence. And you're wanting to know the future when it is not it's not for you to know the future. If God wishes to reveal the future to you, he will. But the future sometimes is too much, too difficult for us to even understand or comprehend. Um... I mean, just look at what we're going through now. If you knew about this years and years ago, you probably wouldn't even believe what we're going through right now with the lockdowns in this situation. And for some people, it might be too much even to deal with for all those years thinking about it. For any of you that watched my series on Our Lady of Sorrows, uh, the prophecy of Simeon to Our Lady, she was made known the future of Christ. And so she had to suffer all those years knowing the brutal sufferings that he would go through, the horrific death that he would have. I don't wish that on anyone. That's yeah, a brutal thing to, to have to have in your mind all the time, every moment of your life. And that ties into these quotes you can see now on the screen. And this is all from the Dewey Remus Bible online. Uh, the site is drob.org. But here in the book of Numbers... He sent therefore messengers to Balaam, the son of Beer, a soothsayer who dwelt by the river of the land of the children of Ammon, to call him to say, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt that had numbered the face of the earth sitting over against me. And then number two, Balaam, also the son of Beer, 
the soothsayer, the children of Israel slew with the sword among the rest that were slain. Number three, because like a soothsayer and diviner, he thinketh that which he knoweth not. Eat and drink will he say to thee, and his mind is not with thee. And that's from Proverbs there at the bottom. So soothsayer is someone who is a fortune teller, basically. And those two verses that speak of Balaam, uh, the story behind that is Balak, king of Moab, sent twice for Balaam, who was a soothsayer, to curse, to put a curse on Israel. And if you remember the story, the Lord obviously blessed Israel, and then he sent an angel to stop Balaam from attempting to put a curse on Israel. And this is the scene where the donkey or the ass spoke and complained to Balaam, you know, why are you beating me? And and then the angel, it was really the angel speaking through the through the donkey, through the ass. And then the angel says to him, Why beatest thou thy ass these three times? I am come to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse and contrary to me. So it's just showing that these these are wicked deeds, but they are actual people actually have this ability. And there are such things as wizards, as sorcerers, as all of these occult practices. And the way you protect yourself from these is not through amulets and, and um, incantations because that's just bringing on more evil to you because a lot of the pagans will do those such things. It is through belief in Christ. It is through baptism. It is through staying in a state of grace by going to confession, uh, receiving the sacraments in a state of grace, and then also wearing blessed sacramentals. Now you want sacramentals that are blessed by a legitimate priest. So you don't want to go to one of these Novus Ordo priests who were, quote-unquote, ordained in the new rite. You want a traditional Catholic priest who has been legitimately ordained to then put the blessing on the St. Benedict's Medal, the Miraculous Medal, rosaries, the scapular. These are all important. Um, not They're not amulets or charms it's it's not superstition it's actually putting your faith in the saint in our lady in the sacraments of the church in their protection it's basically wearing a prayer and even on the saint benedict's medal there's a prayer of exorcism i have a separate video on on that uh sacramental in and of itself i do have another video on miraculous events around the brown scapular as well as the rosary and uh, demonic possession. So these are very important things to have, but especially now when there are very few priests. Um, I had someone ask me, how do I get something blessed? Well, what you do is you find a traditional Catholic chapel or church near you. I do put links in each of my videos where there are locations. And if you can't go there physically, well, mail a nice letter, give a donation, Put a self-addressed stamped envelope in it and say, you know, dear father, could you please bless the scapular? Can you please bless, you know, these St. Benedict medals, whatever it is. Uh, I've in included a, a self-addressed stamped envelope for your convenience and a donation to thank you. And 
that's how you do it if you if you're unable to if you don't have access to a priest that's how you would do it uh, i would also suggest those of you who were baptized in the new rite of baptism to get conditionally baptized in the traditional rite i actually had that done um, a couple of months ago father jenkins of the society of saint pius v conditionally baptized me because i have no idea if they even said the proper had the proper matter and form and intention to baptize me in the church because the sacraments have been so changed that they don't reflect the true meaning, the true sacramental rites. And some, some of the sacraments, like, for example, confirmation, they don't even use the proper oil. So, and then also the priestly ordinations, the bishop, bishop consecrations, these have all been changed purposely. So... And this is done, and the reason why it's done purposely is because the people who changed it do understand the spiritual aspects of it. So if you watched my video on the diabolical secret of the new mass, you can see some of the evidence for John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, um, and others being part of Freemasonry. So that is an occult organization. That is a, a diabolic organization that worships Lucifer as God. And this is a fact. This is not even disputable. The popes have warned about this continually. It is basically the anti-church of Satan. And so they had a plan to infiltrate the church. That was the permanent instruction of the Alta Ventita. They did so. And what did they do? The first thing they do is they destroyed the priesthood. And they changed the sacramental rites of the priesthood. I have a video on that as well. Uh, that Father Jenkins is in, explains all of that, uh, the change in the sacramental rites in, the, in that video. Um, why do they do that? Because they know if, if the Catholics are deprived of grace, then all their spiritual protection is gone. Then they're easily deceived, fall into immorality, and then they, they believe a lie. They, they fall into idolatry. Look at how far we have fallen now. Uh, with the Pachimama. But even before that, John Paul II did even worse things than Francis. And the same thing with Benedict XVI. Even worse or just as bad as Francis with the Assisi events. Do not be deceived. What I have on the screen now, you can see highlighted, eat blood, eat blood, eat with blood. This is all condemning eating or drinking blood. And this is another occult practice and sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Obviously, you've all heard of Dracula. And that was a quote-unquote fiction novel. But there... People write fiction in certain instances to be able to tell a true story without having to divulge the actual persons or, or to protect themselves. Or because it's such a fantastic story that if they wrote it as fact, no one would even believe it. It sometimes can be used as a way to warn people. It could be also used as a way to lay out a blueprint for future events um, in a deceptive way. So like, for example, Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World. That is a, a blueprint of our reality now. It was written as fiction, but he was very well much involved in eugenics, and that 
type of blend between the satanic occult and science. And so what we see today with the eugenics program and the occult combined is the the mass murder of, of unborn infants, their selling of their body parts um, for cosmetics, uh, as well as for you know, other types of evils, um, including what's in the injections. But this is all this is all part of what I was mentioning earlier, the kind of that alchemy, so to speak, that the, these occult rituals and, and what I'm going to show you now comes up right to the the present and it just shows that there is nothing new under sun um, things really don't change it's just many things are hidden under the surface and now that evil s believes it's now triumphing uh, you're going you see it unmask itself so to speak and they become more and more proud and then their practices be become more and more mainstream because they control the media they control the police, they control the military, you know, they have power beyond belief. And so it makes them feel that now they can, they can say that homosexuality, homosexuality is a good, uh, pedophilia is going to be normalized, even hideous things like bestiality. Uh, but, but blood drinking is something that is done today. And it has been in the news, um, adrenochrome. So let me, I'm going to, Cut to about a seven minute, seven minute clip on this topic that was done by Greg Grease. It's actually two short special reports uh, I put into one. Adrenochrome. Adrenochrome? Hmm. Adrenochrome first hit pop culture in 1971 when gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson wrote about it in his book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He wrote that his lawyer, Oscar Acosta, was defending a Satanist who was charged with molesting a child. The Satanist client paid his lawyer with adrenochrome and claimed the only source was the adrenaline glands from a living human body. If you search Google for adrenochrome, the Google-supported result is from the conspiracy wiki, which suggests that it is all merely fantasy. But just to the right, you will find that adrenochrome is real. According to scientific research, adrenochrome is formed by the oxidation of its precursor, adrenaline. Adrenaline is the active hormone from the adrenal medulla, otherwise known as epinephrine. EpiPens are auto-injectors that contain synthetic adrenaline. Developed by the U.S. military to protect soldiers in the event of chemical warfare, EpiPens are used to treat extreme allergic reactions. EpiPens only have a shelf life of about 18 months. According to the manufacturer, after 18 months, the oxidation process begins and the EpiPens are turned into adrenochrome. Interestingly, both companies that manufacture the EpiPen, Mylon and Kaleo, are connected to the Clinton Foundation. Ambrosia. 
A controversial new startup company was recently charging $8,000 to fill your veins with the blood of young people. Founder and CEO, Dr. Jesse Carmazin, who claims it will give you superhuman powers, has recently ceased patient treatments due to a recent FDA warning. In Greek mythology, ambrosia means immortality and was the food of the gods that gave longevity or immortality to whoever consumed it. It is believed by many researchers to represent the blood of the young. The cosmetic industry has been using aborted fetal tissues in various anti-aging skincare products. The taboo culture of consuming the young seems to go back through all of human history. But now, it seems to be coming out into the open. Democrats are pushing for full-term abortions. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mothers. And telling us that the future is too grim for us to think about raising a family. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. Is it okay to still have children? How far is this going to go before humanity has enough? If you were to watch Schindler's List, you would say, boy, that was terrible. I wish I was around that. Maybe I could have done something. You can do something now because they're pulling kids out of the darkest recesses of hell right now in dumbs and all kinds of places. Uh, the adrenochroming of children. Actor Jim Caviezel is being ridiculed and defamed in the mainstream news for speaking out against child trafficking. While promoting his new film, Sound of Freedom, based on the true story of former U.S. government agent Tim Ballard, who quit his job to devote his life to rescuing children from global sex traffickers. Jim Caviezel described what adrenochrome is. Essentially, you have adrenaline in your body. I'll just simplify it. And, and when you are scared, you produce adrenaline. Uh, if you're an athlete, you get in the fourth quarter, you have adrenaline that comes out of you. If a child knows he's going to die, uh, his body will uh, secrete this uh, adrenaline, um, and they have a lot of terms that they use. The Mockingbird media responded by firing a chorus of headlines into the brainwashed minds of the public, all to the tune of, adrenochrome and the consumption of children is a dangerous right-wing lie. But it isn't. Millions of people waking up from the generational sleepy lie of pop culture are seeing the ugly truth, seeing the millions of babies aborted each year, sold for fetal body parts, seeing old women rub aborted fetal tissue into their skin to appear younger, and seeing official science comparing young blood to the fountain of youth. It doesn't matter how many times the lying fake news media decries QAnon conspiracy theorists, or right-wingers. Millions are now seeing what they have been busy hiding. The trafficking of children, slavery, 
Caviezel warned that the film may never be seen because there are very famous people in Hollywood involved in child trafficking. And once they see the ships that they transport the children in and all of this stuff, um, well, there's, there's no other film like this. Our industry can't make this film um, right now because of a lot of people that are involved in it all over the world that are in this. Um, and many of these people are very famous. He even mentioned dumbs. Because they're pulling kids out of the darkest recesses of hell right now, in dumbs and all kinds of places. Deep underground military bases, which we were warned about in 1995 by former government engineer turned whistleblower Phil Schneider. People have always been telling us this ugly truth. Alex Jones and David Icke, William Cooper, Manly P. Hall, all the way back to Aristotle. And now it's all coming out into the open, the apocalypse, the revealing of what was once hidden. Like Plato's allegory of the cave, there are millions who keep themselves ignorantly buried in the mainstream lie. But millions of us are awakening to the evil truth, and we demand justice. And these people that do it, um, there'll be no mercy for them. This is Greg Reese. Now, that was a bit disturbing, but that's the reality of, of the situation we're in right now in this world. And providentially, that movie actually was released on September 19th. So a few days ago, almost a week ago. And I didn't, I didn't even realize that until I was looking it up because I wanted to watch it. And um, so that is available. It's in movie theaters. It's also on uh, DVD, Blu-ray. I'm assuming it must be streamable. So you might want to check that out. I still haven't watched it yet. I, I probably will um, soon. But this also goes back in history, the, the bathing of blood. Um, there was the infamous queen of Hungary, uh, or Countess of Hungary, uh, Elizabeth Bathory. You can see her, her picture or her portrait on the screen, who was a serial murderer. She is accused of torturing and killing hundreds of girls and women and bathing in their blood to bring about youth. So again, this is the whole Dracula allegory, but it is based in reality. And this is part of, sadly, a tragic part of human history. But as Catholics, this is actually part of our spirituality, the drinking of blood. And what I mean by that is the bread of life discourse by Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So we see that Satan tries to mimic, ape, uh, Christ and the church with his own false sacraments, his own sacrilegious and blasphemous sacraments. Uh, but the true, the true blood that we must drink is that of Christ's. And so if you remember from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, the many disciples who were following Jesus couldn't, couldn't take this, this statement of his. And so they stopped following him. 
So for those of you who may not be familiar with this part of the Gospels, and for those of you who are, it's always a good reminder. But in what you'll see is beginning at verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And then he continues. And in verses, verse 56 here he says, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, the same also shall live by me. The bread, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things he said, teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then here we go with his, the disciples. Many, therefore, of his disciples hearing it said, This saying is hard, and who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, said to them, Doth this scandalize you? If then you see the Son of Man ascending, ascend up where he was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe, and who he was that would betray him. And now, what you'll find interesting here is in verse 66. Now, remember, this is chapter 6, verse 66. So 666. And then Jesus says in response, And he said, Therefore did I say to you that no man can come to me unless it be given him by the Father. And after this, Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have known that thou art the Christ, the Son of, the living, the Son of God. So this is a very clear example that Christ was, was saying literally, his flesh and blood we are to eat, those who truly believe in him. And who was it that abandoned him? Who were the first Protestants, so to speak? Were these disciples who could not take his saying. And the Protestants reject the true presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And so we can see here Simon Peter, the first pope of the church, acknowledging the truth of Christ's true presence in the Blessed Sacrament. So this is a clear example of Christ's teaching and how the Protestants are in error. They do not have the faith. They are faithless, like these Jews, these apostles who were following Christ, who did not believe his words, even after seeing all of his miracles and all that he had done. And this is why Paul VI changed the sacramental rites. The first sacramental rite he changed was the ordination of priests. And if because if you have invalid priests, they cannot consecrate the bread and the wine to become the body and blood of Christ. And as Christ just said, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. And then the actual mass, the rite of the mass was changed 
to make the consecration invalid, uh, the mass itself invalid, because of the change in matter, form, and intention. But that is a subject for another video uh, that I posted, I guess it was last week now, if you're depending upon when you're watching this video here now. Uh, the video is asking the question, you know, is the is the new rite of ordination valid? Is the new mass valid? So you should certainly watch that to get an understanding of, of why this is so. But these are all, this is a spiritual battle. So you have to understand that the enemy wants to take away the protection, the graces that we hum, humans need to be able to defend ourselves against the diabolic powers, against the evil people, against the sorcerers, against the the soothsayers against all these people who do have power given to them by their false god, Lucifer, Satan, however you want to term him. And we see that the first occult activity would have been the act of Eve, right? So occult means hidden, hidden knowledge. Satan tempted Eve with this hidden forbidden knowledge, and that was the forbidden fruit, the knowledge of good and of evil. And he lied to her, saying that she would have she would not die the death. Now he did say that they would have knowledge of good and evil, right? So they did gain that, but by gaining that knowledge of evil, they gained death. And they would die the death. And this is what the occult ultimately gives you. It gives you a hidden knowledge, a forbidden knowledge, but it is a knowledge to damnation. It is an, it's, a defense, it's offensive to God. And it is done purposely to destroy the human being, the eternal soul. And so you see a lot of these celebrities, they state that they've given their souls, sold their souls to the devil, and he had given them power for a season, for maybe a, a few years, a few decades, whatever it might have been. But what does a prophet have been if he gained the world and lose his soul, as Christ has said? So that is the cost of this forbidden knowledge, of this momentary fame and fortune and power, whatever it might be, that the fallen angels can provide to foolish men, deceived men. But ultimately, the, the devil wants to destroy mankind. He wants us in hell with him for eternity. And those who wish to follow him, that is their ultimate end. That's where they will go. So now let's look at some instances of magicians in the scriptures and then also in more recent times. So here you can see what is a very famous scene in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, where it's the scene of Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Um, this would be found in the seventh chapter of the book of Exodus. And I'm just beginning here at verses, verse six. And so, and Moses and Aaron did as the Lord had commanded. So did they. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh shall say to you, show signs, thou shalt say to Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it down before Pharaoh, and it shall be turned into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and did as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron took the rod before Pharaoh and his servants, and it was turned into a serpent. 
And Pharaoh called the wise men and the magicians, and they, and they also by Egyptian enchantments and certain secrets did in like manner. And they every one cast down their rods, and they were turned into serpents. But Aaron's rod devoured their rods. And so you can see that Moses and Aaron, their rod turned into a serpent, into a snake. But the magicians, the occult magicians of Pharaoh, were able to, to create the same wonder, the same um, magic, if you want to call it that. So these forces, these powers, both sides seem, well, do have, but obviously God being God is more powerful, and that's symbolized in the serpent of Aaron devouring the serpents of the magicians. So let's look at some instances of magic and magicians in the scriptures. So one instance here is in Second Chronicles chapter 33. And this is talking about King Manassas, who was king for 55 years in Jerusalem. But he turned over to the worship of false gods, was worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. But here in verse 6, you can see it's saying that Manassas, uh, and he made his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of Benam. He observed dreams, followed divinations, gave himself up to magic arts, had with him magicians and enchanters, and he wrought many evils before the Lord to provoke him to anger. And as you can see in the quote underneath that, which is taken from the book of Wisdom, chapter 17, verse 7, it says, And the delusions of their magic art were put down, and their boasting of wisdom was reproachfully rebuked. So this is just giving further credence to the fact that magic is evil. It provokes God's anger. It is contrary to the first commandment. And it is putting the person or persons who are invoking these arts under the slavery of Satan and the fallen angels because that's where the quote-unquote power comes from, from the preternatural gifts that those spirits have, the ability to manipulate the elements, their knowledge of the elements and the, the forces of nature and all that God has created. And what I have on the screen here now are a few instances of the apostles uh, battling against magicians uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, chapter 8, verse 9, chapter 13, verses 6, and verses 8. Uh, the, the first one is an interesting uh, situation in that Simon the magician, he actually tried to pay to be become an apostle. That's where the, the, the sin of simony comes from. That's where the term simony is based on Simon the magician. So meaning if someone was tried to pay to become a bishop or a priest, uh, it is a obviously a grievous sin because you must be called by God and you can't just take it upon yourself or try to pay someone to do it. So let's look at some modern day magicians and see what they're actually telling us about where they get their, their arts from, where they get their talents, so to speak, from. So on the screen now, you'll see a poster from arguably the most famous magician in history, and that would be Harry Houdini. 
and you can see all the devils surrounding him. What I have now on the screen next is a poster from his brother, uh, Hardin Houdini, and again, you see a devil in the corner. And now I'll put on the screen some some famous magicians from yesteryear as well, and you can see over and over again, it's the same thing. The devil, the devil in their ear. So they're telling you right in front of your face where they get their their illusions from, their quote-unquote powers from. And the devil, the, the Bible is just confirming this in the passages I had just read. Now to bring this even further into the present day, you'll see a recent advertisement for arguably one of the more famous magicians of our day, David Blaine. And you can see there, obviously, on the bottom, all the demonic spirits surrounding him regarding this particular stunt that he was pulling. And, of course, there is David Copperfield. And he has a museum, the International Museum of Library and Library of the Conjuring Arts. Conjuring. Well, what are they conjuring? They're conjuring demonic spirits. And to bring this back to the scripture, probably the most famous conjuring, at least in the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible, would be found in the first book of Kings, chapter 28, where we have King Saul, who had been abandoned by God because of his wickedness. And uh, he had tried to, it says, consult the Lord, as you can see on the screen there in verse 6. But God did not answer him, neither in his dreams, nor through priests, nor by prophets. Why? Because God had abandoned him. And what people don't realize, and St. Alphonsus Liguori uh, proves this through the scriptures in his sermon, the number of sins beyond which God pardons no more, that there's a number of sins that each man is allotted for his life on earth. For some it is few, for others it is many. Uh, but everyone is allotted a certain amount of sins. And once the person has reached that number, that is it, they're cut off. So in this case, he was cut off. And instead of trying to fast, make a sincere repentance, uh, do things to truly attract God's mercy, he instead continued his wickedness and sought a witch. So there it says in verse 7, And Saul said to his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a divining spirit, and I will go to her and inquire by her. And his servants said to him, There is a woman that hath a divining spirit at Endor. And as the the scene goes on here. He disguised himself because he couldn't have the witch know that he was the king because she would be fearful that he would have her put to death. Um, and then you see there in, in verse 9, it says, And the woman said to him, Behold, thou knowest all that Saul hath done, and how he hath rooted out the magicians and soothsayers from the land. Why then dost thou lay a snare for my life to cause me to be put to death? And then he swore unto her by the Lord, which again is another sin, to, to take the Lord's name in vain. You know, just by saying, 
when you're saying to someone, oh, I swear to God or, or um, honest to God, whatever, those terms would be considered taking the Lord's name in vain. That would be a serious sin. It could be a serious sin. It should be confessed. Um, so he says there, you know, as the Lord liveth, there shall no evil happen to thee for this thing. And the, and the witch then says to him, whom shall I bring up to thee? And he said, bring me up Samuel. So this is Samuel the prophet who had died, a holy man. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and said to Saul, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said to her, Fear not, what hast thou seen? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said to her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul understood that it was Samuel. And he bowed himself with his face to the ground and adored. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disturbed my rest, that I should be brought up? And Saul said, I am in great distress, for the Philistines fight against me, and God is departed from me, and would not hear me, neither by the hand of prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest show me what I shall do. And then the prophet says to him, and Samuel said, Why askest thou me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and has gone over to thy rival? For the Lord will do to thee as he spoke by me, and he will rend thy kingdom out of thy hand, and will give it to thy neighbor David, because thou didst not obey the voice of the Lord, neither didst thou execute the wrath of his indignation upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done to thee what thou sufferest this day. And the Lord also would deliver Israel with thee into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow thou and thy sons shall be with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And forthwith Saul fell all along on the ground, for he was frightened with the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten no bread all that day. And so, so this is the witch of Endor conjuring the spirit of Samuel and the Lord permitted this to happen and this is just adding to Saul's punishments and we can see in the first book of Chronicles here uh, what had happened well what ended up happening is just as Saul sa uh, Samuel said all three of his sons were killed uh, Saul was then hit with many arrows and then he decided to just kill himself by falling on his sword and so here at the end of of that it says in in verse 13 so Saul died for his iniquities because he transgressed the commandment of the Lord which he had commanded and kept it not and moreover consulted also a witch and trusted not is the Lord therefore he slew him and transferred his kingdom to David the son of Isaiah so here, very clear, those who consult witches, those who disobey God, those who commit unrepentant sin, they are cut off. So let's go now to some modern-day witch. And this will probably shock a lot of people who are not aware of this and probably disappoint many as well. Um, so this is regarding a very famous NFL quarterback's wife who is a witch and I'll let this clip uh, speak to that. 
And Father, you know, I think that this um, this whole theme of this rising paganism, as you as you called it, I think that theme has been so prevalent today. You know, just recently I, I sent you an article uh, concerning Tom Brady, who just won the Super Bowl with the Patriots, right, and right. how um, you know along the similar similar lines here, he's he's explained how uh, he has one of the reasons he's been so successful is because of his witch wife who yeah. who sets up altars for him, gives him mantras to repeat and uh gives him sacred stones to protect him. Stones and, to protect him and, and all, all sorts and of And he's things. going along with it. He says it works. And that's why he he's said it works. Uh, and uh you know what is kind of ironic? Here you have a man who's who's uh been kind of crowned as the greatest of all time. The goat. The goat. <laughs> Isn't that strange? The goat. It's all in capital letters. He's being called the goat, the greatest of all times. I understand he isn't like that. That's right, yeah. But of all things that would characterize someone in an occultic char- uh, you know, <laughs> symbol, the goat, right? Yeah. The, symbol, the symbol of Satan himself, yeah. you know? Um, the symbol of the condemned spirit that our Lord puts on his left hand, the goats, right? Mm-hmm. It's those who rejected him. It's so ironic that that has come up all of a sudden. Now, I'm not saying that Tom Brady, I'm not saying Tom Brady is, you know, one of those on the always left hand or anything like that. But I'm saying if he is going to start promoting uh, witchcraft and the occult and, and the New Age um, uh, superstitions yeah. and attribute his victories to these things, I would say that uh, he's in very, very serious spiritual uh, straits right now. Sure. And his, uh, his wife, uh, who's a supermodel, so-called, I guess, um, is, is, is into the occult. And I think she's even quoted as saying he should be grateful that he married a witch. A good witch. A good witch, yes, okay. So, uh, but anybody involved in witchcraft is, in, is uh, engaging in things that are very evil, in any case, no matter how good they may consider themselves. And invoking Satan or invoking uh, the occult powers to do good is still evil sure. to do that. So. To do what is good in itself, materially good is formally bad. So, um, but uh, you know, if I were a winning quarterback and I had a record that he did, how how insulting would that be to my own record to say I accomplished this by means of magic, spells, and witchcraft? That's what has made me the greatest quarterback. I've simply used occult powers to give me this uh, success. I mean, what is the man actually telling us? That what it has made him is, is great, is something other than himself, that uh, left to himself he would be nothing or no greater than anybody else. I mean, this is really... Uh, he himself is not only undermining, but he's actually discrediting his achievement, I think. In the worst possible way, it's like a, uh, a a confession of guilt, in a sense that, yes, I've achieved my success, success over others. I have achieved my dominance over others on the gridiron by means of occult powers that my wife is gaining for me by her uh, by her witchcraft. Mm-hmm. That does not speak well for this man. No. Um, and you'd think if he had any sense, he'd find it to be an embarrassment that he wouldn't want to admit. Mm-hmm. Oh, either it's true or it's not. Either there are occult powers that are 
uh, propelling Tom Brady's success, or there aren't. And maybe it's just a placebo that gives him some kind of confidence uh, that might give him some kind of a natural advantage over his over his uh, his adversaries. That he's got got these powers behind me, so I can accomplish great things. Maybe you know nothing to them. You know that it's a it's a joke or a farce or fraud. But uh, the fact is, uh, though, that he himself is attributing his success to occult powers, and uh, this is really awful. Uh, and uh, if I were he, uh, I would, I would uh, think about the story of uh, Mephistopheles and Dr. Faustus and uh, Goethe's uh, morality tale about this. You know, I would be very, very concerned uh, about this. If I, if, it, if I were he had any faith, real faith mm-hmm. in Christ, I'd say this is, a, this is very bad. And uh, what, I, what I said there was really an admission of uh, something that uh, um, is a scandal to those who, who admire me and a kind of confession of guilt to those who find me uh, problematic, shall we say, who don't, don't like me. Sure. It, it, what about Bill Belichick, too? What about him? Where, what, what faith does this man have in anything? You know? I mean, if, if I were a coach, uh, especially at that level, and I had a quarterback who achieved such success that I was being called the GOAT and I found out that this is what is driving his success, I, I'd repent of that right away. But uh, I don't hear anything real Bill Belichick about this. <laughs> no. Anyway, this is not a good, obviously not a good thing. Nope. Well, Father, let's move from that to Francis. And by, by the way, I tell you, I'm sorry, if I were a fan, if I were a fan of the New England Patriots, and I heard that my quarterback and my team's success uh, was actually powered by the occult, whether it be Wicca or Satanism or any other form of the occult. I mean, that would that would be the end of it for me. That would be the end of it for me. Nothing to do with this anymore. Sure. What, what I've noticed, the father, is that uh, you know, when reports like this come out, that so many will just totally dismiss them as some kind of joke, some kind of laughable thing, oh, haha, that's cute, and you get that reaction so often from so many people who don't want to take it seriously, and I believe even in the, the article where Tom Brady was talking about these things, he, he was kind of laughing it off and, and laughing about the fact that his wife would make these altars and give him these mantras and all of this stuff. He was At the know, same time he was doing that, he said he's taking it seriously, it works, yeah. and he does what she, yeah. he, he does now what does what she tells him to do, because he believes it works. Yeah. Now, what scandal is involved in, in there? You know, you think about all the uh, Patriots fans and all the fans of Tom Brady himself, apart from, you know, the, the team allegiance there, who will learn from that. This works. This gives me power. That's why people turn to the occult. They're looking for power. They feel powerlessness. They feel their powerlessness and they want power and they turn to the occult for power. And Brady says, this works. Look what it did for me. That's, uh, that's a horrible scandal. Sure. And there you have it. So that was a clip that was uh, taken from an episode of What Catholics Believe. That was Father William Jenkins of the Society of St. Pius V. Uh, That was a February 17th, 2019 episode titled Tom Bracey's Sorcery, Francis's Latest Heresy, and Covington Catholic Kids Vindicated.
It's definitely a good episode to watch in its entirety. But these types of things have been going on for centuries, millennium. This is nothing new. It's just not really spoken about all that that much, at least not so much the mainstream media. But we know that it happens. Uh, We know that first ladies have conjured spirits like Nancy Reagan, uh, Hillary Clinton with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And it's just something that the who are perceived as the elite do, but they do it to their own destruction. I mean, just look at some of their lives and how uh, some of their lives have ended or, or will end. But let's go now to witchcraft sorcery within the quote-unquote church. And let's go to something uh, regarding... First, let's go first regarding uh, Francis, and then from there I will we'll get into uh, Paul the Sixth, Benedict Sixteenth, John Paul the Second. So, for a lot of you, this may be the first time you're hearing or seeing any of this, and uh, so it probably will be shocking. But this is what we're dealing with. When we're talking about this, as it's going on before our very eyes right now in this synod. In, in Rome right now, with Francis quasi-pontificating, means meaning for him listening, 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 listening to what these people are saying, listening to what the people, now listening to what the young people are saying about their faith, so the church can learn the faith from them. Okay? I want you to notice something, that Francis is carrying what is called a stang, Uh, this in place of the bishop's staff. He's not carrying a crozier. He's not carrying a pastoral staff. He's not carrying something surmounted by a crucifix. Uh, Not even that distorted, twisted, uh, quasi-crucifix that Paul VI and his, his followers have introduced. Not even that. Francis is carrying a witch's staff. He's carrying a witch's stang. S-T-A-N-G. You can see it in the photographs coming from the Synod for the youth. And this witch's stang was presented to him by two young women. Well, not so young. Uh, One of them, at least, was 30 years old. Why she's at this youth conference, I don't know. But she was presenting to him. There were photographs of her presenting this stang to Francis, who has a look of ecstasy on his face. And it's very, very clear in the photographs that she is wearing a witch's bracelet, bracelet, the red knotted cord around her wrist, which you see on the wrists of the followers of the Cabal, of the Kabbalah. There are pictures of Madonna wearing the knotted red cord, token, betokening her following of the Cabal. And she, with that very same hand, which uh, is adorning this red, knotted red cord of the Cabal, a satanic symbol, is presenting Francis with this stang, the satanic staff, which symbolizes the authority of Satan. Look into it yourselves. You'll see exactly what I'm saying. This is is notorious now. Uh, I'd be surprised if any of you have not yet heard this. 
because it is so widely known now that this is taking place because of the scandal that has arisen from it. And when these young women, more or less young women, presented this to Francis back in, I think, April of this year at a gathering in the Circus Maximus, they said to him that they wished he would carry this at the Youth Synod, and that's exactly what he's doing. Um, it is scandalous that he's doing this. People ask, does he realize what it represents? Well, by now he certainly realizes it. He must know what it represents. But even if he didn't recognize it when it was presented to him, you'd think if he had a Catholic cell in his body, he would say, this is not a crozier, this is not a pastoral staff, this is not a crucifix, what is this thing? You'd think if he had a, com a bit of, com of common sense, he would check it out too. But he certainly realizes what it represents now, by now. He's been carrying it throughout the Synod for youth. And they're applauding him. Even as he's listening to them dictate what the faith is, their faith experience is now. But you see, Francis is applauding Paul VI. And he's planning on canonizing Paul VI. And all one need do is look at the monumental portrait of Paul VI done over a 20-year period by a German Ernst Gunther Hansing, a Lutheran, not a Catholic gentleman, who has actually given room in the Vatican to paint this so-called portrait of Paul VI. And we should have that on the screen for you to actually see this right now. If you have time to study it, you see it appears that St. Peter's Basilica is falling to ruin all around him. You ask, how can this be a portrait of Paul VI? Where is Paul VI in this? A scene of destruction where the towers and the pillars of St. Peter's are, are collapsing in on each other and everything looks as though it's, it's in the process of, of being of disintegrating. The church in the process of disintegrating. But then you see in the lower center of, the, of this very amazing portrait which is, oh my goodness, it, it must be close to 10 feet tall. You see a, a small, relatively small head, it's probably life-size, of Paul VI uh, looking demonic. He's actually apparently hunched over and through these squinting but piercing eyes he has a look of, of diabolical fury and hatred and underneath his chin he's holding a dagger. The dagger is pointing downward as you might see in a satanic ceremony, and it is dripping with blood. This is a, this is a portrait of Paul VI, a, 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 a that, and a portrait that Paul VI himself approved. In fact, Paul VI is quoted as commenting on that portrait that it is an accurate representation of the situation of the church at our time. That is Paul VI's assessment of this so-called portrait of his pontificate, which represents the church just collapsing in on itself, basically imploding. There are so many Masonic symbols in this. Uh, th there's a whole list of them that are provided by those who study this portrait. 
But it is really a very interesting statement that Paul VI made that this represents, this accurately represents the condition of the church at, at our time. Is it any wonder, therefore, to see Francis following in the line of Paul VI, following the map charted out by Paul VI as to where the church must go, and now coming up with this Church of the Synod, the Synodal Church envisioned by Paul VI, even as, he, as uh, Francis is implementing this vision and about to canonize Paul VI as a saint of the new order. People have to ask themselves uh, where, where all of this is going. Uh, there are many already who, who see clearly where it's going. St. Pius X saw clearly well over a hundred years ago where all this was going. And he condemned all of this already before it even had taken place. Uh, all is necessary is someone to take St. Pius X seriously, read what he wrote, and decipher it and understand it, and connect it to the events that are actually taking place before our very eyes today, to realize that modernism is having its heyday in the devastation of the church. So there you go. Again, it's, it's right in your face. It's hidden in plain view, so to speak. And this was something that occurred in August of 2018 when he first received this witches or sorcerer stang. And then again, he used it October 28th of that same year at the Youth Synod in the Vatican. Uh, this particular clip is taken from a video, a video series on modernism. Uh, you can see it on the screen. It was the Franken Church of Francis. Uh, I recently did, uh, I, I covered all four of these videos that Father Jenkins did. I added some additional commentary in the beginning of it on my channel, so it goes longer. So if, if this type of if this type of discussion interests you, I would suggest watching either either of those videos. Now, let's look at another clip. Uh, this is coming from a video I created about seven or so years ago called The Enthronement of Lucifer in the Vatican. I'm just going to play a couple of clips from this, from the late Father Malachi Martin who had written and, and spoken extensively on uh, satanic worship inside the Vatican. And now, you know, looking at this now, I mean, this is, these were recorded, these two clips were recorded in the mid to late 90s. Because uh, if my memory serves me correctly, Father Martin died in 1998, 1999. And so now with the benefit of hindsight and what we're, what's in front of us now with Francis, we can see all the occult, all the satanic rites of pedophilia, the rite of sodomy, all these evil diabolic things uh, coming more and more to the surface, being more and more normalized as evil presents itself as good and what is good is now being deemed as evil. So it's a complete inversion. It's the, the reign of Lucifer, the, the preparation for the revealing of Antichrist. But let's let's listen to this clip of Father uh, Malachi Martin. Uh, the, first, the first part is going to be 
from an interview with Art Bell from Coast to Coast AM, and then another an interview with uh, Bernard Jansen. Father, um, I've got an article here entitled, Two Eminent Churchmen Agree. Yes. Uh, that there actually is, this is a shocker to a lot of people. Yes. Uh, that there is, there are satanic practices going on at the Vatican. Could that be true? Yes. You want, you want to say that? Uh, if I was a lawyer and you were on the witness chair, I'd say, would you say? <laughs> it's out loud, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now, when we say in the Vatican, it's at a certain level. And um, there's no doubt about it that there have been and still are practices that are uh, formally uh, venerating Lucifer, the prince of this world. There's no doubt about that. But that himself has about eight resident exorcists. And uh, it, it uses those both there and in the two other cities that are devil-ridden in Italy, Milano and Torino, Milan and uh, Turin. But there's no doubt about it that satanic or Luciferian practices, because it's really of the prince, and his name is Lucifer. It's really of the prince that these, uh, in veneration of him and service of him, that these actions have taken place and do take place. So, Father, is it because this is such a holy place that it makes it a number one target for Lucifer, or is it that there is a disease or a cancer within the Vatican uh, makes it sound like Watergate. <laughs> I'll tell you what I think, uh, Art. It is that amongst Luciferian organizations, there is a prophecy that they can invade the citadel, and that's their name for the Vatican. They will have power for a thousand years. How close are they? Very close. Very close. The struggle between good and evil enter into the church directly. Can Satan have an influence even inside the church? From our experience, we have to say yes to that question. It's a difficult question to answer theoretically. Not that we don't know the theoretic principles behind Satan's penetration. You see, Satan is free to penetrate everywhere that human beings exercise free will. The book of Job has the, has the classic example of that. At the beginning of the book of Job, Satan is confronted by God and he says, God says to him, look at my servant Job. Just a man you cannot find in the land. And Satan says to uh, God in the story, which is only a story from that point of view, give me my chance, I will make him fall. And God says something like the equivalent of, it's a free country. If you can make him fall, take him. And the principle is that anyone who is human, who has a free will, is liable. Now, that's uh, all the apostles and all the bishops and all the priests and all the popes are free agents so they can be tempted. Secondly, there's this, that, um, you know, Christ speaking to the apostles on the Lake of Galilee after his resurrection said to them all, Satan has wanted to sieve you all like a man sieves wheat and chaff. And then turning to Peter, he says, and you especially. So he, he told them they'd be tempted. And uh, the history of the church, or of churchmen as such, tells us that temptation and uh, giving way to temptation has been the law of churchmen from the very beginning. 
Even Peter himself yielded to fear, which was a temptation, and denied his Lord three times. And uh, so there's no doubt about it, Satan can penetrate the church. What we must emphasize today, though, Bernard, is that the ordinary penetration of the church through its members by Satan has been demonstrated amply in the past. What we have never found in the history of the church since the ascension of our Lord, and that was when the church was really set up, the Pentecost and the Ascension, is that this is the first time we have undeniable proof that Satan has been enthroned in the church by some of the church's own churchmen, and that the citadel which before was besieged, with small breaches in it and small little traitors, now has Satan enthroned within it. And, you know, Paul VI, who ended up a very miserable pope. In the end of his life, he gave an interview to his great French friend, Jean Guiton, who later published it when he died. And at one stage, Jean Guiton said to him, Holiness, um, Saint-Pete, what do you think is the fate of the church going to be? You have said that the smoke of Satan has in the church and is wafting around the sanctuary altar. And uh, Paul VI said, yes, he said, mon fils, my son, we have said that and it is true smoke of Satan is in the sanctuary and probably Catholics are, just, uh, are uh, destined to become an infinitesimally small part of humanity due to the presence of Satan uh, and that means that in the mind of Paul VI because they went on talking Catholicism and Catholics and the church would be marginalized completely because their, 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 their impressive leaders would be taken over by the temptations of the devil and what we must remember is this, that, sure, there have always been temptations in the church for churchmen, for gold, for sensuality, for pride and ambition. But this is the first time that a new assault has been launched. The assault is very simple. Just be like the rest of men. Adore a general God, be good, be compassionate men, be humanitarian, join man in building man's earthly world. Earthly, uh, earthly uh, habitation in this world. Amongst Luciferian organizations, there is a prophecy that if they can invade the citadel, and that's their name for the Vatican, they will have power for a thousand years. How close are they? Very close. Very close. So there you have it. And those of you who are watching on YouTube, as opposed to listening to the podcast, uh, you'll see, you would have seen some quotes that I put on the screen in that video. Uh, there's some key key prophecies that I listed there. So in, in this particular video, I had shown, or this clip, I should say, some prophecies from Our Lady of La Salette. And that was back in 1846. It's an approved apparition. That Those prophecies, the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success in the 1600s and Our Lady of Fatima in 1917, those three approved, church-approved apparitions and messages uh, 
are a must-read and must-research, especially for those of you who are just coming across all of this because it will make it all very clear or clearer as to what Our Lady had predicted and warned about. Our Lady of La Salette had warned about religious houses losing the faith and leading many souls to hell. And at this point, it's it's more or less every religious order, uh, sadly, has fallen into modern is the heresy of modernism, and is leading souls to hell. With the Jesuits, you know, headed by Francis, being arguably the worst. You would also have seen a prophecy from the Book of Lamentations. And an important thing to understand about the Old Testament is the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the New. So things that happened in the Old Testament were also foretelling of what would happen in the New. So whenever you see Israel mentioned in the Old Testament, it's a foreshadowing of the true Israel of God, which is the church. And so, for example, if we look at the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up to the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments. Moses is a prefiguration of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, Moses receiving the old law and, and then you know, presenting that old law to Israel, the foreshadowing of the church, but Christ being the fulfillment of the law and then teaching the, the law of love of God and love of neighbor, the two, the two main commandments that Christ brought to us were to love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments make up the entire law. And so, again, Moses as a foreshadowing of Christ, Aaron... Right, Aaron was the high priest. Aaron would be a foreshadowing of, let's say, the papacy. But what did Aaron do while Christ was away? You could you could maybe say while Christ was ascended into heaven, um, you know, with Moses up in the mountains. Right. Well, Moses. I'm sorry, Aaron, the pontiff of Israel at that point. He created a golden calf. They worship the false god. And that is what we're going through now. We have these Novus Ordo, quote-unquote, popes who have created the their own golden calf, and it's the cult of man. It's uh, a Freemasonic... Uh, it's, it's Catholicism, I guess I should say. It's, it's Freemasonry and modernism with a Catholic veneer. So they're wearing the vestments, they... You know, they claim that they're Catholic. They have the, they own the Catholic buildings and the bureaucracy, but everything they do is worshiping false gods. Now, this quote that you saw is from Lamentations, and it says, "The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should enter in by the gates of Jerusalem." So this was obviously true during this time, during Jeremiah's time, but this is also applies to us now. So the adversary has entered into the gates of Jerusalem, 
has entered into the new Jerusalem, which is Rome. That adversary is Freemasonry. That adversary is Lucifer, Satan, who is the adversary. He has entered in. Our Lady of La Salette, in those prophecies, she said, Rome will lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. All right, so these are all, all tied in together. And now you're seeing, I mean, you've been seeing Antichrist uh, in the Vatican, but a lot of you just don't know or don't have don't understand it, don't fully see it, uh, have not had this stuff brought to your attention, or have not had it put together in this way. And so, but it's, it's so vitally important. That's why it's so important to know history. It's so important to read scripture. It's so important to read the fathers and the doctors and the saints, because they are grounded in the truth. And when you learn from men who are holy, men who are saints, the fathers of the church, you cannot go wrong. It's when you turn to things that are new, people who aren't saints, apparitions that aren't approved, that's where you get led astray because you don't, we don't need new teachings. We don't need new apparitions. We have enough. We have enough prophecy. We have enough from history, from the writings of the saints, to be able to understand and and see what's happening, what's going to happen. But the main thing we all have to worry about is you have to save your soul. It doesn't matter what the latest prophecy is here or prophecy there. You have to you have to focus on saving your soul. So you could have all the knowledge in the world, but if you die in mortal sin, it doesn't matter. It's over for you for eternity. So you have to focus on getting your own house in order. Breaking free from from mortal sin, going to confession, um, praying, praying the rosary every day, because that is the key. If you lose your soul, all is lost. Now let's go to more occult symbolism being used by the Novus Ordo popes. So you had seen Francis with the witches or sorcerer Stang. Now I'm going to bring something up that will probably shock many people. I wasn't aware of this until only recently. And that is the what is called the bent or the broken cross. So you'll see that on the screen now, and you'll be familiar with, uh, primarily probably you'll be familiar with it, uh, John Paul II using it, also Benedict XVI, Francis has used it. But it got its start with Paul VI, who commissioned it in 1963. And the first time he used it was at the last session, uh, the, the official closing session of the Second Vatican Council. I don't believe that to be a coincidence. Uh, this type of a cross was actually condemned by Pope Benedict XV, and it came from a very, I guess what you can call a dark school of um, artists. Uh, it's termed a, a new school of expressionism. And you can see on the screen now um, the crucifixion that was condemned by Benedict XV. This one particular artist, uh, Surveyas, I'm not sure, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but in 1919 he made 14 charcoal drawings uh, depicting the Stations of the Cross for a monastery 
and it was condemned because of the hideousness of it and any type of artwork or crucifixes that were similar to this were also condemned by the church but of course the modernists bring it back but the actual bent cross itself goes back even further and what I have on the screen now is you can see a book this is a book called The Broken Cross The Hidden Hand in the Vatican this was published in 1983 by a Roman Catholic named Piers Compton and he goes into extensive extensive um, research on this topic as well as others but you can see here in the appendix it also appeared uh, within the book itself but he says here quote he Pope Paul VI also made use of a sinister symbol used by Satanists in the 6th century that had been revived at the time of Vatican II. This was a bent or broken cross on which was displayed a repulsive and distorted figure of Christ, which the black magicians and sorcerers of the Middle Ages had made use of to represent the biblical term Mark of the Beast. Yet not only Paul VI, but his successors, the two John Pauls, carried that object and held it up to be revered by crowds, who had not the slightest idea that it stood for Antichrist. Furthermore, this exhibition of a, a desecrated figure on a twisted stick was forbidden by Canon 1279, which condemned the usage of any sacred image that is not in keeping with the approved usage of the Church. That it was used for occult purposes may be seen in woodcuts shown in the Museum of Witchcraft in Bayonne, France. So, again, it's, it's hidden in plain view. It's in your face, but you would never know unless you had done this research, you know the history of it. But this just is confirming Our Lady of La Salette's prophecy that Rome will lose the faith to become the seat of the Antichrist. It confirms the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success, uh, that the church would be overrun, infiltrated by Freemasonry, which Freemasonry is the occult. It is the mystery schools of Babylonian, the Babylonian Talmud, the Kabbalah, all these dark forces, all these occult practices, witchcraft, uh, worship of the devil. But I'm going to turn now to a clip, again, of Father Jenkins speaking on this specific topic. Uh, let's listen. On a different, different topic. I thought this one was interesting. Uh, I'd like your, your feedback here from Ms. Vier who says, Father, it was brought to my attention through NovaSortoWatch.org that the bent slash broken cross frequently used by John Paul II and now Francis is a blasphemous cross as it depicts our Lord and the cross in a twisted and grotesque way. Myself and many other faithful have this cross at home, particularly on rosary beads. The site says that this bent cross was a product of some artists in the 1960s during the modernist invasion. I am now feeling quite uncomfortable praying with, and in particular, kissing this cross on my beads. Should I be concerned? Yes. Okay. Take it off, replace it with a real crucifix. Um, if, you, if you go to Rome and you try to buy a, uh, a rosary, you'll have a hard time finding a rosary without some atrocity like that really? hanging from it. Yeah, it's hard to find now because they have this cult of Francis and they have this cult of John Paul II. And uh, it, it is really alarming. Uh, the broken cross is a, is a satanic symbol. 
Okay? And not only that, um, I mean the cross itself, but the so-called corpus on the cross is made to look hideous, distorted, monstrous. It's almost like a... a, 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 a if you, if you were to put a li lizard in the oven and, and, and fry the lizard, that's what you'd get out of it. You know, it's something uh, really hideous. You know, Tom, you, you go to the Vatican now, you, you go through the doors, uh, the, the doors to go into the Basilica, uh, doors you can out the Basilica. Um, <clears throat> you will find doors that have been put there by John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth, and they are absolutely made of nightmares. The stuff of nightmares are made of. They're supposedly showing the martyrs, but the martyrs look absolutely—they look like demons, you know. You go through the Sistine Chapel. They have to go through the Vatican Museum, the Santa Raphael, and all this. You, you finally get to the Sistine Chapel, and then there are rooms at, at the end. You can go through at the end of the Sistine Chapel. Not everybody does, but you can go through. That have artwork that was collected by Paul the Sixth. Tom, you think you, you think you're going to hell? <clears throat> You'd think you went to Satan's own uh, studio in hell. You couldn't think of anything more uh, more uh, obscene, more grotesque, uh, twisted, hellish than these so-called artworks. And Paul VI reveled in them. Uh, everything he touched was as though he got it on, on like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, he got it shipped in from hell. You know, if they had eBay or Craigslist or something like that, <laughs> you know, if the devil's selling on Craigslist or eBay, I mean, we know who bought all this stuff. Paul VI stacked the Vatican with this stuff. <clears throat> you, you saw the portrait of Paul VI, right? It was published in the Smithsonian Magazine. <clears throat> this, this enormous painting of Paul VI. Well, it's supposed to be a portrait of Paul VI. What it shows is the church toppling down all around him and this little, little shrewish, shrewish face. Uh, Paul VI holding a dagger dripping with blood, you know? And Paul VI later said, yeah, that reflects the state of the church today. Oh, boy. Uh, truer words, you know, have not been smoked, and spoken, not by him, anyway. Um, but anyway, so you get this cult of ugliness, that so-called crucifix is not a crucifix at all. It is an abomination. It is a mockery. It is blasphemous. And I would beg whoever has that, to detach it, <clears throat> I mean, do not wait till morning. Go out, uh, open up the link, take it, and discard, bury it somewhere, okay? And um, and get a real crucifix and put it on there. Okay. Uh, the real crucifixes are still available, thank, thank goodness. Okay. Uh, and then, then I would recommend they have it blessed again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, Father, speak. So there, there you have Father Jenkins just confirming what I was referring to before. And actually, I did receive uh, from John Paul II, you can see a picture of me uh, with him. This was a private audience I had with him in 1999 uh, when I was a seminarian uh, for the Diocese of Trenton. And in the background there is a Father Joseph Anthony Lopez of the Diocese of Corpus Christi. Uh, we were friends. He was studying in Rome at the time I had visited with uh, several other seminarians uh, mainly from the Philadelphia Diocese. And when we met him, he gave us uh, a package with rosary beads, and it had that ugly occult crucifix on it. Now, I didn't know about this, but 
later on, about 11 years later, when I found out about what happened in Assisi, that Benedict XVI was allowing a pagan on top of the altar and all the other uh, horrific sacrileges uh, that took place, when I found out that John Paul II did the same and that there were pagans offering incense to demons inside of Catholic churches, I took that rosary and threw it out because I, I just had an in, intuition, instinct that this, this was diabolic. And um, so that was my experience with that particular crucifix, a personal experience with that. So I hope you understood from what I presented here that evil is very real, witchcraft, sorcery, all these diabolical arts are real. We must avoid them and we must call on the protection of Almighty God, uh, Our Lady, the saints use the sacramentals that our Lord gave us, uh, that the saints gave us, uh, use the sac mainly use the sacraments of the church to keep ourselves in a state of grace so that these wicked spirits and evil people who are in union with them can have no power over us, have no advantage over us. Because it is when you have, when you're in a state of mortal sin, when you're not praying, when you don't have sacramentals that are a, uh, a constant prayer on you, you are subject to them. Uh, you become prey to them. And this is also another reason to make sure you pray before you eat, before each meal. Uh, if you remember the story of St. Benedict, there were some monks who were jealous of him and they decided to kill him by poisoning his wine. But St. Benedict prayed a blessing over the wine and it instantly shattered. And so today, who knows what's even in this food? A lot of the food that we're eating with the GMO and uh, aborted babies and who knows what they put in there um, with Pepsi putting, I think using fetal tissue for the flavoring. It's just completely diabolic. So more than ever, we need to keep ourselves in a state of grace. We need to pray the rosary every day. And we need to rely upon the sacraments and the sacramentals that our Lord gave us to protect us and defend us from the diabolical forces. Now what I want to do is I'm going to end this video with a uh, the beginning part of a book uh, publication from the Catholic periodical Chiesa Viva. Uh, on sorcery. The Last Battle by Dr. Franco Edessa Why does the last battle that Our Lady is calling on us to fight have as a battleground the chain of the Sibyllini Mountains and the surrounding areas? Why are these lands shaken by earthquakes and churches destroyed? Why was the Basilica of the Patron of Europe, St. Benedict of Norcia, raised to the ground. Marco Rebecchi writes, quote, Since ancient times, the Sibyllini Mountains have been considered magical, mysterious, occultic, and considered a destination for secret pilgrimage and blasphemous meetings between sorcerers and demons. A sanctuary for creatures that are midway between the mythological and diabolical. Many names of places seem to confirm these legends. Devil's Cave, Devil's Peak, The Pit of Hell, Hell's Gulch, Bad Pass, Lake Pilot, The Fairy Grotto, or Cave of Sibylle. In 1420, Antoine de La Salle 
gathered information on a legend about a cave on Mount Sibylla, in which one would be entering the realm of the goddess of love. Necromancers, wizards, demons would dwell on Mount Sibylla, and in the cave. But nearby there is no less gloomy and enigmatic place, Lake Pilate, at the foot of Pizzo del Diavolo, dominated by the peak of Mount Vittore. End quote. Luigi Pellucci wrote in his book, The Apennine Sibyl, quote, The oldest evidence related to our mountain dates back to 1300. It concerns Lake Pilate, where the fame of the enchanted waters populated by demons in the form of fish draws the attention of necromancers who flock there to consecrate magic books, grimoires, as the most suitable venue where summoned spirits are ready to obey them in exchange for their soul. End quote. Marco Rebecchi, quote, Right there on Lake Pilate, according to legend, the demons that infest it would require an annual human sacrifice. End quote. Antoine de la Salle speaks of a strong reaction from the local people against the necromancers and a suspicious attitude towards foreign visitors. He tells of two men who were captured in the vicinity of the lake and then brutally killed. A priest dragged Norsha there and burned at the stake and his companions cut to pieces on the spot and thrown into the lake. Still, LaSalle collected testimonies of the locals who claimed that the necromantic practices had resulted in the unleashing of terrible storms. Conversely, in the 16th century, Benevuto Cellini, in his autobiography, tells of a necromancer who would recommend Lake Norsha, also known as Lake Pilate, as the most suitable place to dedicate books to the devil, and that the residents were willing to collaborate in this practice. This apparent contradiction may be due to economic interests on the part of the locals. In those centuries, the lake was alternately called Pilots or Sybil. In the first case, the name, so evocative, brings back memories of the days when Rome was the capital of the ancient world. It handed down an ancient legend that the Emperor Vaspian, after having set fire to Jerusalem, summoned Pilate, an old man, accusing him of failing to prevent 37 years before the crucifixion of Christ the Redeemer, at the time when he was procurator of Judea. For this, Pilate was sentenced to death but he was granted a last wish. The old Roman asked that his body be placed on a cart pulled by water buffalo and abandoned to fate. The request was granted, but the emperor, intrigued by the unusual request, instructed soldiers to follow the wagon. The animals wandered up to the mountains of Norsha, dragging the cart and, arriving on the shore of the small lake, hurled themselves and the cart they had dragged along with his body into the icy waters, reddening the waters. The association of the lake with Sybil's name, however, could be linked to the prophetic powers that the place gave to wizards and sorcerers. It was still again Benvenuto Cellini, who confirmed that alchemy practiced in the Sabia Mountains and near Lake Pilate was intended to evoke the demons that could point out treasures hidden underground. 
the testimonies of an observant Franciscan friar, Bernardino Benevigolia, were also reported that told of evil men who built altars with three circles and placed themselves as an offering in the third circle, evoking the devil, by reading his name from a book. Nicholas Paranzoni confirms this practice by writing, quote, There are two circles with some characters engraved on the stones near the bank of the lake, end quote. Meanwhile, Francesco Panfilo speaks of the presence of an internal circle of which, quote, is pronounced Tau Erux and a different character which indicate the names of the quote-unquote supreme god for the principle of the inversion of the symbols used in black magic. The supreme god is represented by the most powerful demon, perhaps Lucifer himself, end quote. Antoine de la Salle in his work, The Paradise of Queen Sybil, writes that Pope Innocent and Pope Urbino had the cave of the Sibyl destroyed to prevent access. The practice of erecting gallows at the steps of the passageway to Lake Pilate appeared to have a prior date. The motivation, however, is clear, to discourage necromantic practices around the lake. Hence, the origin of the names of places, Forca di Presta, Gallows Point, and Forca Voila, Purple Gallows, on the Mount Vittore. Maria Montesano, in her, quote, The Sacred to Norcia's Caves, reports how Ennio Silvio Piccolomini, the future Pope Pius II, said that he had heard of a convention of witches, demons, and night shadows, as well as evocations of spirits who would teach the arts of magic. The presence of witches as well as necromancers in the Sibylli Mountains might be motivated by the consecration of the Lake of Sibyl to the Nautic, subterranean, or underworld power of the prophetess in pagan legends. It was believed that some of the consecration and invocation practices could give the most lasting influence precisely thanks to the presence of one or more women. In light of this, the, quote, stories heard by Piccolomini may be linked to fates or handmaidens of the Sibyl that used to come down to Foce, a village located between the lake and the cave, to dance with the local boys. These fairies were beautiful from the waist up, but they had goat's feet, and this made it possible to easily recognize them. They could dance all night, but had to return to the underground kingdom before dawn. The dance of the fate might be interpreted as a Sabbath or a magical ritual of evocation, thus giving greater substance to the presence of witches or fates around Lake Pilate. Another source of facts about the history and the mysteries of the chain of the Sibyllini Mountains is the Chronologia Sturchia della Visite alla Grata della Sabia, or in English, Historical Chronology of Visits to the Cave of the Sibyl, which reads, quote, the information we have in 69 AD is from Suetonius Vitellius when he states that, quote, a sacred vigil was celebrated on the mountain range of the Apennines, end quote. In 268 AD, in Scriptura's Historia Augustae, Trebilus Polio tells us that in that year, Claudius II, the Gothic, 
relied on the responses of the prophecy of the Apennine Sibylle. In the period of 1320 to 1340, landslides occurred inside the cave, also caused by the earthquake of 1328, and the cave was closed to political religious actions, highlighted by the historian Falzetti. Quote, struggles between heretics and Dominicans and bulls and edicts of the church to combat the heresy of the Templars, alchemists, spiritualists, Cathars, Paterines, etc., who had taken refuge in the lands of the Seville. In 1452, in a parchment found in the historical archives of the city of Montemonaco, there is a condemnation of Montemonaco for the frequenting of the Lake of the Seville and the enigmatic Seville Cave by knights who came from Spain and the Kingdom of Naples to practice alchemy and consecrate magical books to Lacum Sibylle, or in English, to Sibyl Lake, which would soon be called Lake Pilate. In a trial, the entire population and the authorities of the city of Montemonaco were excommunicated and then acquitted for helping foreign knights to reach the lake and the cave of the Sibylle. The year 1578 is the emblematic date engraved on the rock near the collapsed hallway and is still visible today. The date is read without too much difficulty even today. It is 1378, but it is thought to be a conversion made in the 17th and 18th century when the number 5 written in the Arabic number becomes a 3. With this fancy conversion, someone has probably wanted to connect the date of birth in 1378 of the legendary Christian Rosengrus, Christian Rosacruce, or the Rosicrucians, as has also been recently suggested to the presence of the Rosicrucians in Sibyl's lands and their ideal link with the legendary grotto. Rose crosses carved on stone beams of windows and doorways have been produced up until the 17th century in numerous villages along the whole Sibyllini range. The aim of the Rosicrucian was recalled in an ultra-secret document drawn up in the euphoria of the Italian Freemasonry, a lithographic volume outside of commerce destined for the high administrative degrees of the institution, published in Florence in 1945. Speaking of the birth of the, of the masonry, the document says, quote, The Rosicrucians Giovanni Teofilo Desaglarius and James Anderson, a Protestant minister and others, convened on June 24, 1717 in London with the members of the four lodges there that were active at the time. This meeting's objective was to found the Brotherhood of Free and Accepted Masons, with the Alchemical Society of Rosicrucians to allow the Rosicrucians to secure their al alchemical researches and their Gnostic and rationalistic ideas under the guise of their respected brotherhood and to secure the free and accepted Masons of the advantages that only the wealthy, influential, and ambitious followers of the Rosicrucians could procure for them, given the real decline that threatened the primitive brotherhood. End quote. Thus, Freemasonry was born on June 24, 1717, from this compromise. We recall also that the duty of the Rosicrucian Knight is to fight Catholicism, 
and its ultimate purpose is to obliterate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross from the face of the earth. In 1773, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, along with a dozen Jewish financiers, his friends, began to plan to establish a world government to take possession of all the resources of the planet with a, with a declared aim to decimate the world population. A. M. Rothschild entrusted to Adam, to Adam Weishaupt to create the Satanic Order of the Illuminati of Bavaria that, secretly, had to take over all the Masonic lodges of the world. The purpose and strategy of this world supreme direction is set out clearly by one of their leaders. Our ultimate aim is that of Voltaire and the French Revolution, that is, the complete annihilation of Catholicism and even of the Christian idea. The best dagger to assassinate the church and strike at the heart is corruption. We have embarked on the largest corruption, corruption of the people through the clergy and clergy through us, end quote. To corrupt the clergy, however, it was necessary that the throne of Peter be occupied by the supreme head of the satanic order of the Bavarian Illuminati. This new quote-unquote pope, together with the head of the Rothschild family and Lucifer, would form the triangle of the Antichrist and would know the deepest and closely guarded secret of the hidden heads of Freemasonry, the redemption of the satanic Masonic Triple Trinity. The corrupting work of the Apennine Sibyl has increased significantly and required a change of name and place. The Vatican Sibyl and the Vatican Cave. Finally, we report an incident that recently happened on the Sibyllini Mountains. Three young Umbrians from the group the X-Plan, which has always been interested in the stories circulating about the presence of the famous Sibyl of the Sibyllini Mountains after quote-unquote astrological and numerological calculations of the place. From the results that they obtained, they decided that the best day to have a quote-unquote sign of the Sibyl would be July 3rd. After reaching the cave of the Sibyl, they continued up to Casale Lanza and, in this valley, with a clear cloudless sky, suddenly, out of nowhere, they saw on the side of Mount Regina Sibylla a figure that they consider to be that of the Sibyl in the act of screaming. The image remained motionless for about eight minutes, then blended in with the surrounding light and the shadows. The three young people believed that, with this apparition, the Sibyl wanted to convey the message of her presence and her suffering as an invitation to respect her natural realm. Verified on the internet, the uniqueness of this, their testimony, they conclude, quote, our challenge is to figure out if one will experience the same phenomenon next year on the same day and at the same time. End quote. The Secret of the Sibyllini Mountains Historically, Redeemer's Summit was called Vittore, as it was the most visible peak of the group, although it was 28 meters lower. While Redeemer's Summit clearly expresses the significance of Christ's redemption on the cross, Mount Vittori hides the terrible secret of satanic symbolism of the redemption of Lucifer. Since 2006, our magazine, Chiesa Viva, has denounced the presence of the redemption of Lucifer and the satanic and blasphemous Masonic Triple Trinity in the satanic temple dedicated to St. Padre Pio on the tomb of the mother of Paul VI 
in the Satanic Temple of Paragone in Bresca, on the liturgical insignia and the coat of arms of Benedict XVI, and more recently on the logo of Mercy, on the logo Mater Misericordiae, and the altered miraculous medal Our Lady gave us in 1830 in Paris. The redemption of the Satanic Triple Trinity is the deepest and closely guarded secret of the heads of Freemasonry worldwide, a terrible secret that is found on the Sibyllini Mountains, the favorable references to be imprinted on these beautiful mountains. This Satanic redemption, like a cancer not known to exist, but whose effects are felt, is the occult center of the mystery that has plagued these lands for centuries. And I will end the article here. Uh, it goes on for many more pages, but that just gives you a bit of a, a flavor of what's in this particular edition of Case of Eva. I'll put a link in the description for those of you who are interested in reading more, but it gets into a lot more detail and it would be probably too much to try to do in this video. And Frankly, some of the things are beyond me um, with some of the geometry and, and the things that he points out, so it's way above my my pay grade. So I hope you enjoyed and learned a lot from this video. Please remember to hit the like and subscribe button. Subscribe also to my other channels. And please keep me in your prayers. I will pray for you, and, and please also pray for the people that come to my channel. Thank you. <music>